Have you been or are you a family struggling with an addict? Healing is more than just for the addict. It needs to happen within the family. Hi, I'm Ray Bersier. And I'm Candace Platter. You're listening to From Surviving to Thriving for Parents. Welcome back. This is episode 25. And if you are a parent or soon to be parent who wants to give their kids the best start in life that you can give them, then you're in the right place. This show is all about you because we're about support, transformation, and taking unwavering action so that you can be the parent that you always needed and be the parent that they need you to be. Before we dive into our latest installment of the interview series, From Science to Woo and Everything in Between, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank those who've reached out to me with your kind words and support for last week's episode. It was the hardest thing for me to record, to put it out in the ether, and I am humbled to hear your stories and be able to support you along your journey. So thank you. Today's interview is with Candace Platter, an addictions expert who has struggled but has been clean for nearly 35 years. We talk about several different perspectives, and the most important one being that healing isn't just for the addict. Often overlooked is the healing that needs to take place within the family. Let's jump in. Today, we have Candace on the show, and Candace is an addictions therapist in private practice, where she specializes in working with the family and other loved ones of the people who are struggling with addictions. Because as she discovered on her journey, overcoming addictions is a family condition, because everyone in the family is affected by it, and everyone needs to heal from it. What makes Candace stand out above others is that she herself was a former addict with the now 34 years clean. If I were to write down the definition of from surviving to thriving and needed examples, Candace would definitely be one of them. And with her experience, skills, astounding results, she's become one of the most sought after leaders in the field of addictions by helping families and their addicts break the devastating cycle for good. So welcome, Candace. I'm honored and grateful to have you here today. Hi, Ray. Hi, everyone. I'm really glad to be here. So I'm really looking forward to this. This is uh, round two. So we originally started talking at Potapalooza, but due to some technical issues, we weren't able to get that done. So we're redoing this interview. Yeah. So what really interests me is about the work that you do is that it really hits close to home. What you do is so valuable and so important to the lives of many people and not just the addicts. Like you mentioned, it's all about the family and the family that needs to heal. And there definitely needs to be more of this in this world. And that's why I'm so thankful to have you here today. Well, that's why I'm glad to be here too. So we're on the same page. Now, addictions, they come in all different kinds of shapes and sizes. So just so that we could be clear for the sake of our conversation for the listeners, what type of addictions do you generally work with? Well, I generally, because it's more prevalent, I generally work with what we call mind-altering addictions. And that's 
you know, the usual suspects of drugs, alcohol, anything that actually alters the brain, the brain chemistry. So there are other addictions as well, which are more behavioral, and we call those process addictions. And those are things like gambling or smoking cigarettes or eating disorders, overspending, watching porn, gaming, you know, those kinds of things that don't actually alter the brain chemistry in the same way that alcohol and drugs do. That's great to know. Addictions really do come in all shapes and sizes. And there's very few families out there that probably have never had to, you know, had to deal with these types of issues. They do, yeah. And yet, at the same time, you know, addiction is addiction is addiction. And people choose the one that, or the ones, sometimes it's more than one, the ones that fit for them, for their personalities, for what they enjoy, you know. But we all use addictions for the same reason, and that's to help us feel different than we feel. For most people, they want to feel better. Some people actually want to feel worse, but most people want to feel better. And so we use addictive behaviors to help us feel better. Yeah, definitely interesting. I can understand how it tries to make us feel better, but uh, do you want to just elaborate on how they want to make it worse? What do they have to go through to experience this that really drives them to take an addiction that is going to make them feel even worse than they already do? Yeah, you know, a lot of people who develop addictions, they've had trauma in their lives of some sort, and they've had real trouble dealing with that trauma emotionally. And so a lot of people don't feel very good about themselves. They somehow explain to themselves that this trauma was about them as people when it really wasn't. So their self-esteem, their self-respect is very low. They don't like themselves. They don't feel that they deserve to feel good or to be happy in life. This can be worked on. This can be changed. But when people feel that way, they often go to some kind of coping mechanism, i.e. addiction, that will intensify those feelings. It's tragic, but it can be stopped before it gets too tragic. And that's the good thing. And that's where we really want to be able to help others especially even the family. Yeah. Because the impacts of the addicts can really have a detrimental effect on the families. Yep. Now, your journey through addiction, it was a bit different than most usually experience. Would you be willing to share with us a little bit of your journey? Yeah, sure. I don't have any secrets anymore. <laughs> There's a saying in, in the addiction field that our secrets keep us sick. And I really believe that having had many secrets in my life and I just don't have those anymore. I feel much better today. So what happened for me is that when I was in my early 20s, which was quite a long time ago, um, I started getting very sick. I started feeling, I thought, you know, I went out for lunch one day with a friend and I thought that I had food poisoning with the symptoms of food poisoning. You know, the things that people don't like to talk about, like diarrhea, nausea, that kind of thing, throwing up, but it never stopped. So we knew it wasn't food poisoning, but we had no idea what it was. And at that time, it was in the early 70s, and the doctors did not know what to do for me. In fact, some of them told me it was all in my head, which it indeed was not. They just didn't know what to do. So I, I eventually was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which at that time, nobody had ever heard of. It was a new kid on the block 
disease. Um, today, most people know what it is, but if there's anybody listening who doesn't, it's an inflammatory bowel disease with those same kinds of symptoms. It's supposed to be incurable. I still have it after many years, but I'm a lot better. And it's, it's debilitating. It's embarrassing. It's hard to manage. You know, it's not a fun disease to have. So I went to several doctors. Doctors didn't know what to do for me. So what they did, and it's important to say addiction was not on the radar at that time, the way, certainly not the way it is today. But what they did was they threw a lot of medications at me, like Valium, which is addictive, like opioids, codeine, morphine, Oxycontin. They gave me as much of that as I wanted. They kept refilling the prescriptions over and over again. So it was day after day, month after month, year after year for almost 15 years. I actually became an opioid addict because anybody's body would get addicted to those substances and mine definitely did. Wow. Yeah. So if you fast forward those 15 years, you know, these substances that they were giving me are all depressants in the human system. Valium, all the opioids, you know, heroin, all of them. And I was also smoking a lot more pot because that had never been a problem for me before. But you can get addicted to pot. Please know that. So I, I was smoking a lot more pot. And that's a depressant in the system, too. So years later, I was so depressed and I had no idea what was happening for me. but. I was so depressed that I became suicidal. I started to think about, you know, in my house, I could do it. I could time it so that nobody would find me in time. You know, so I had the means, I had the opportunity, I had the reason for doing it. And I really scared myself because I thought I just might do it. So I had a choice at that point. Probably the most important choice I was ever going to make was I going to die? Or was I going to learn how to live, right? So I chose the second one and I reached out for help. I'm so grateful that there was help out there. I called the crisis center in my city and somebody there saved my life. Somebody there listened to me and respected me and told me that I actually had a choice, that I didn't have to use those substances, that I could come off them, that I was in fact addicted to them. And that just opened my eyes. So I started going to 12-step programs after a short stint in a psych ward. I had signed myself into a psych ward because I was afraid that if they didn't take my clothes, I was going to go and kill myself. So while I was in the psych ward, I started going to Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, those 12-step programs. Went to them for about 10 years, got a 10-year cake, and then started to feel like I wasn't quite in alignment with what they were teaching. So I stopped going, but, you know, people there also saved my life and I just wouldn't change a thing. And so here I am in July of this year, I'll be 35 years clean and sober. That's amazing. Thank you. That happened one day at a time, sometimes one second at a time, just the way it does for everybody who decides that they're going to be in recovery. So I'm pretty happy with how it is now. It was very difficult to get to where I am now, but I'm really happy now. So it's very worth it. I know you don't need to hear from me, but your journey, it's just, I'm very proud that you pulled through, that you overcame. Thank you. Not even just overcame, you did. You essentially did go from surviving to thriving. Yes. And now here you are 
one of the big things we talk about in the show, there's an ancient Chinese proverb, to know the road ahead, ask those coming back. And you were on that road. Now you are on your way back and you've been coming back you know, for 35 years. Yeah. Now, when you were going through your struggles, um, did they have any sort of impact on your family? And if so, how did that impact? Yeah, my family was a little different. I grew up with a narcissistic mother, classically narcissistic, who, you know, took up all the space, all the air in the room. My father was pretty self-absorbed. They both had their own addictions. And they didn't really care that much what was going on for myself or my brother. So, you know, when this happened to me, there wasn't a lot of support. There wasn't a lot of interest. And that was very painful for me, too. I remember going to rehab. And they had a family day at rehab and everybody there had their family there except me. So that was, a, that was pretty difficult. So I don't know that it had a big impact on my family. I know that most families are incredibly impacted by this. I think my experience was a little different and I'm always so glad when I work with a family who cares what's happening to their addicted loved one, whether it's a child or, you know, an adult or a partner, a spouse, whatever, a sibling. I'm so glad that people care about what's happening and, and that I can help them find their way to doing things that are actually going to help instead of things that will enable the addict and keep them in the addiction. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how it was. Oh, that's perfect. I want to follow up on that in just a couple of minutes. So we'll come back to that. Okay. There's one thing I wanted to kind of ask you and get your opinion on. So when it comes to addiction, you know, just like mental health, there's always seems to be some sort of stigma or like a label that seems to get assigned to those who struggle. It almost becomes like a narrative that gets assigned to the addict by others, is used to define you. Did you experience that at any point when you were going through your struggles? Or have you experienced that with any of the families that you worked with? Yeah. And again, you know, my situation was different. I, I'm the kind of person that falls through the cracks all the time. <laughs> it's just been that way in my life. I accept it now. I didn't know what was happening to me. I had no idea what, why I was so depressed or, you know, what, why my life just blew apart. I had no idea. And when the word addict was used with me, I had a feeling of relief because I suddenly understood what was going on. I could do some research into it. I figure it out. I could do something about it. I could go for help with it. It was a different situation for me. And that was in 1987. So it's a little bit before this whole idea of stigmatization came into play. What I can tell you from an addict's perspective I know this for sure. When we're in active addiction, we know that something is wrong with our lives. We know what we're doing. We know we're choosing, and I use that word deliberately, we know we're choosing to use addictive substances and to stay in addiction. We know we're doing that. We look around at other people that we know, people maybe our own age or, you know, they have families, they have children, they have a job, they have, you know, they're enjoying life, they go on holidays, they go to Hawaii. We're not doing that. Our lives are a mess and we know why. So that's the choice. That's where choice comes in. That's the choice point for an addict. 
when they finally are willing to admit to themselves, I've got a problem. I may not be absolutely sure what the problem is. I may not know exactly what to do about it, but I know there's a problem. That's when recovery can happen. And the problem is that when addicts are enabled, my definition for enabling is when we do for somebody else what they can and actually should, not a word I use often, but should be doing for themselves. That's enabling. When we keep doing that, the addict has no incentive to change. So getting back to the label, I know that today people are talking about, instead of saying addiction, they want to say substance use disorder and, you know, different language because they're afraid of alienating, ostracizing, hurting an addict. But addicts know that they're addicted. They know they're addicts. They're not that delicate. They're not that emotionally fragile that they don't know what's going on. And I don't think that if we say to somebody, you're a substance abuser, that that's going to make them get help any faster than saying you're an addict. I mean, sometimes calling a spade a spade is a good thing. But it's up to it's up to the people who are, you know, I think addicts, because we can be so manipulative in active addiction, could say, they're calling me an addict and they're making me feel so bad and that's why I use, which is crazy. But that could happen. I totally agree. Now, everyone kind of views and experiences reality in their own ways, you know, through their own personal lenses and filters. Yeah how they grew up, what they experienced. But sometimes it happens, you know, where people may turn a blind eye yeah. uh, to the addiction of a family member. Yeah. What are some of the, the signs within the family itself that should become obvious red flags that when action needs to be taken? Yes. And you need to come together and help each other out to be able to assist. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will give you some of those. And it's also really important for the family to come out of that denial and to become a united front to be able to help an addict because they, if there's any kind of chink in the armor, the addicts will find it and they'll find their way through it and be able to manipulate even more. So it's important for family members to come together when there's addiction. And, you know, these signs are applicable to adults as well as children who are starting, maybe starting down that road. So it's good for parents to know these. So one is mood swings. And, you know, sometimes mood swings can happen and addiction isn't in the picture. It often is. So if there are mood swings going on, it's really worth it to look at that and see what's going on. Another one is to look at whether the person who's changing may be spending time with people that they didn't used to spend time with. You know, we call that different playmates, different playgrounds people who may be doing the same things that they're doing, who may not be the best. You know, sometimes children change friends kind of suddenly, or it seems that suddenly they're hanging out with a different group of kids. For children or adults, how are they doing in school or work? If they've been doing well in school and things start to fall down, or if somebody's been doing well in their job and they start to miss work, or start to get bad reviews because they can't concentrate because their brain is going crazy from addiction. Those are all things to be looking at. If there's a lot of, if there's a depressed kind of mood, that's an important thing to look at. If there's euphoria 
that's an important thing to look at. If anything really strikes you as being different about your child, about your spouse, about your sibling, it's okay to say, I think maybe we need to look at this. And I think sometimes families stay in this denial because they just don't know what to do. And they don't think there's anybody out there who will, number one, understand them or could help them. They don't know where to reach out for help. They don't know what to do. When clients come to me, they're usually at the end of their rope. They've tried all kinds of things that haven't worked. There is actually help here for you that works. So I want to let you know that it's okay to poke your head out and reach out for help. That's definitely important. As you mentioned in your own personal journey, support can mean the difference between life and death. And support doesn't just belong to the addict as well. And that's one thing I really want to kind of harp on in here and in a good way, because the family itself needs support along with the addict. Because not only are the addict's actions bad on the the addict themselves, but it also impacts the family. Yes, the family is so impacted. And the thing about this is that the addicts need their families. The families love these addicted people so much and often remember them before they had a problem with addiction and want that person back. You know, they love them so much. Families are so important, but the addicts need their families to be healthy, emotionally, physically, healthy, mentally, spiritually. So. Family members have to, you know, often what family members have been doing, because the the addict's taken up all the space in the room, because they're pretty self-absorbed when they're in active addiction, is that they put their own needs on the back burner, and sometimes that lasts for quite a while. That's not helpful. That's enabling. It's not helpful. And so the families need to stop doing that. They need to stop putting all the attention on the addict. If the addict's going to get all this attention, why should they stop doing anything? If they're going to get money and a place to live and their rent paid and food to eat, they don't have to work and they can get money from the government. Don't get me started on that. And, And all these things, why should they do anything differently? So family needs to take their own needs and start taking care of themselves as well. So important. That whole thing about the airplane, if the airplane starts to lose, you know, the masks come down, whose mask are you going to put on first? So tempting to want to put the mask on somebody else first, a child, a baby, somebody with a, you know, somebody who's sick, somebody who's elderly. They want, you want to put the mask on somebody else. You want to help somebody else. But if you do that, you're going to be lying on the floor of the plane passed out. So you need to take care of yourself first and then give from that place. And that's one of the classic mistakes that families make. Yeah, that definitely can't emphasize enough. It's really important. Now, I I haven't shared this anywhere else. So this is going to be a first here for you and myself. So in my personal experience with a close family member who was in and out of the hospital with their struggles, you know, I tried sounding the alarm and getting help for them from the family. You know, after trying to help that person on my own for a very long time, and I wasn't having much success, neither with person or their doctors. But for one reason or another, you know, the family, for lack of a better term, they chose to keep their heads buried in the sand to the problem. And they just passed it off as that person just being that person. So from your experience, have you run into cases, whether, you know, some of the family or even just one member, they want to take action towards helping the addict. But 
they're alone in trying to do so. Yeah. And if so, you know, what advice can you provide to that person or that part of the family that wants to be able to help? Yeah. Well, it's wonderful when somebody is the strength in that family who will stand up and say, I want things to be different. Things are not okay the way they are. And I'm going to reach out for help whether anybody else is going to or not. I think those people are so courageous. And at Love With Boundaries, which is the name of my company, we start with whoever contacts us. We will work with, eventually, we will work with everybody in that circle of love, you know, anybody who's ready, including the addict. But we'll start with the person who stands up and says, done, I want help. And they reach out and they say that to us. And it's like wonderful. So we provide a whole lot of support to people like that. And we hold their hands through the whole through the whole process, we're there for them. We do therapy and counseling, and we see clients once, sometimes twice a week, depending on what they feel they need. And we also offer them unlimited email and text support because everything that happens, especially with addiction, it doesn't wait till the next session. So, you know, you've got a session on Tuesday scheduled with your counselor, and something happens on Sunday. You don't have to wait until Tuesday. You can reach out for help right then, right? And as the rest of the family, and sometimes the addict too, sees this person growing stronger, setting appropriate and healthy boundaries, doing the work that it really takes to survive this and hopefully thrive as time goes on, other people say, oh, that looks good to me. I'd like a piece of that. And other people start coming on and supporting as well and getting some counseling and doing, making some changes. What families need to understand is that the addict in your life isn't going to come to you and say, please set some healthy boundaries for me, right? And they're not going to thank you for doing it. Thankless job for the family for a while. So it's the family members that need to change what they're doing first most of the time. Every once in a while, we get somebody who's addicted who comes to us and says, I need help. And that's always wonderful. But most of the time, it's the families and the addicts are just doing what they've always done because they could get away with it. But it's not healthy for the addict and it's not good for the family. And so if you're that person in your family that knows that something needs to get done here, please contact us. We're here for you. We understand. Yeah, we'll go into that in a few minutes. As we wrap up because it's definitely really important. And one of the things that you mentioned, it actually resonates a lot with what I do with my clients. It's that transformation in your case, overcoming struggles, and helping the family. That's not a business hour operation. Transformation is 24-7, 365. So it does need support outside of business hour. A weekly or bi-weekly or even a bi-monthly appointment that's not going to get the job done. So yep. what you're providing to these families and these addicts is absolutely phenomenal. Thank you. Yeah, I think they really appreciate it. <laughs> I imagine they do because what you're doing is a lot of what a lot of people can't do on their own. Yeah, and you don't have to do it on your own. You're not supposed to. It takes a village. Exactly. Right? I think that's a really important saying for so many things. There was a study that showed that you're able to get success up to 95% when you have the right support. And the type of support that you offer, there's very little chance of failure. Obviously, there's always the 
a small you know minority that can happen. But with the right support, you become unstoppable. Your family becomes unstoppable. Yeah, with the right support and the courage of the family members to do something different than they've been doing, and that can be hard. It can be tough, but that's what it takes because. You know, there's a line that I just love. I wish I could say that I made it up. I didn't, but I stole it. And it's on my website. And it's that if nothing changes, nothing changes. So the other way to say that is that if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. So that's a choice you can make. Nothing much will change. Nothing much will happen. The addict will probably stay in active addiction for a long time until... It kills them or something happens. Or you can say, okay, I need to make a change here. And even if I'm the only one in my family, and like I was, the only one in my family that knew, that really knew that I needed to make a change, we totally get that. And we totally respect your courage. It takes courage to be able to help in these types of situations. Yeah, and to stand up all alone. Yeah. Exactly. You you can never not give enough props to anyone who's willing to put their foot forward and try to make a difference. Yeah. And the opposite of that, Ray, is that you can't get sick enough to make somebody else well because it's a planet of free will. And each of us has the choice of whether we're going to be sick in this lifetime or well. And I had to make that choice with Crohn's because I had to learn how to take care of myself and still have Crohn's. And I had to make that decision with addiction and many other things, because we're all a choice in every nanosecond of our lives. But, you know, sometimes there were big choices to make. But nobody could have made that decision for me, but me. They could have tried to make me make that decision, but that's not how it works. So we can influence, we can tell people our preferences, we can tell them how it's affecting us, we can do all that stuff. But ultimately, it's up to the person to make a choice. And sometimes It takes boundaries and consequences, not punishments, but consequences. A family needs to say to their addict, we love you so much. We love you so much that we're willing to say no to you. We're willing to stop supporting your addiction. We will help you in your recovery. If you choose that, when you choose that, let us know and we'll be there for you. But we're not we're not wanting to support your addiction anymore because we don't want to see you in addiction. And that's how much we love you. So there won't be more money coming. There won't, you know, there's going to be boundaries. You can't show up in our house stoned or drunk. And, you know, that's because we love them, not because we don't. That's to help them get better and to keep us healthy as their family. That makes sense? Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you mentioned boundaries, and that's one of the big things that a lot of us, you know, we have to be able to set in our lives because boundaries, it's not always easy. And when it comes to saying boundaries with someone, especially someone that, you know, you love and someone that means the world to you, it can be very, very difficult on the, the people who have to set those boundaries. How do you, as a, you know, a family member, how do you overcome the guilt when it comes to setting boundaries with someone who needs those boundaries set? That's such a great question. Thank you. The way to overcome the guilt is to understand that what you're doing is the most loving thing you could possibly do for that person. Enabling an addict to stay in the addiction is never a loving act. It may feel loving to give 20 bucks. Mom, I need 20 bucks, so you give them 20 bucks. You know where that money's going, but you give it to them anyway. 
is that a loving act? You know, so getting over the guilt of setting boundaries is about really, really trying to trickle down because you might know it in your head, but it's kind of not in your heart yet. Really knowing that this is the best thing you can do for the addict in order for an enabled addict, an addict who's been enabled to come out of addiction, they need to start to get uncomfortable in the addiction. If they stay comfy in the addiction, they will never leave the addiction. Why should they? So we need to help them feel uncomfortable so that they can finally say to themselves, you know, this isn't working for me anymore. I don't like this life. It's the most loving thing you can do. But it needs to be done gently, lovingly, with intention, with, with, with um, uh, appropriate languaging. And then it's also important to learn how to maintain a boundary that you've set. Because if you're not going to maintain it, don't set it yet. You know, because they'll just wait. You'll, you'll set another boundary with the addict and they'll just roll their eyes and wait for you to cave because you've set boundaries before and you've caved, right? So we'll help you with all of that. We, that's what we do. We'll finish up here very shortly, but one last question before we do. Sure. Putting the addict aside, you know, we're going to focus on the family on this question. What are some of the things that you can recommend to families to help them come together, to support each other? when going through this this process? Well, they need to get help because most of the time they don't know what to do. And in many families, they aren't talking to too many people about it. Maybe close friends, but usually family members still, you know, talking about stigma. Their family members feel so much shame and guilt about having an addict in the family that They don't think anybody's going to understand them. They're so afraid they're going to be judged and criticized. And and so because they don't talk about it, they don't understand that there are a gazillion families all over the world, all over this planet that are dealing with exactly the same thing that you are, having exactly the same feelings. So it's really important to, to start talking about this, to not keep it under wraps, but to talk about it. And to get some important information about it, I'd like to say that the reason I stopped going to 12-step programs, which was the only game in town when I started my recovery, and there are some really good things about 12-step programs. Please don't get me wrong. There's sponsorship. It's great. Fellowship, you know, clean and sober dances and things like that. But what they do is they tell people, it teaches people that they're, they have an they have an addiction. They're powerless over that addiction. That they will relapse because relapse is a normal and natural part of recovery, is what they're taught. See, I don't believe any of that. As a recovering addict, I never once relapsed, and I had occasion like the time I had to have surgery when I was eight months clean and woke up from the surgery on uh, a morphine drip that I could control with the use of my thumb. And I made a different choice about that because I, I wanted to get my one-year cake. I wanted to stay clean and sober. So I made some choices about what, how long I was going to stay on that, what I was going to do. I don't see addiction as a disease. I have a disease. I have Crohn's disease. That's not something I can say, I'm just not going to have anymore. But I can do that with addiction. It is a choice to stay in active addiction or to move into active recovery. 
I don't think people choose to become addicted, but I think it's a choice once they're there of what they're going to do about that. So I think I lost track of your question. Sorry. <laughs> oh, you did a fantastic job. And I love a couple of those messages that you brought out. I want to bring it back out again. Okay. You know, it comes down to support is strength, not weakness. Yes. There should be no stigma for that because it takes a stronger person to be able to put their hand up and say, I need help. We need help. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I really love the way that when it comes to how you handle your clients and such, it's empowerment over victim. That's right. We are not powerless. I mean, I looked at this and I thought, I'm 10 years clean. How am I powerless over this? I'm not powerless. I'm a choice every day. I get really passionate about this. I can tell. And you know what? That's what really makes this conversation really powerful. You know, And I really thoroughly enjoyed our talk here today. And again, I'm proud of how far you've come and how much you do for the community and for families. Because what you do is basically almost priceless. Because this type of work is really needed in this world, especially now more than ever, with all the struggles going on, with all the lockdowns, people losing jobs. COVID, the opioid stuff that's happening. Yeah, I believe we can stop addiction. I really believe we can stop addiction. There are things we need to do differently in our families, in our societies, in our world. We can stop this. This does not have to continue the way it has. And so I just remembered your question about what what should families do. And so one of the things that you might want to do if you're a loved one, if you're in, in a family with an addict, is take a look at my book. It's called Loving an Addict, Loving Yourself. It's the top 10 survival tips for loving someone with an addiction. It's won some awards, which I never thought would happen. I mean, when you're an addict, you never think that, I never thought that I would ever do anything to help the world, right? But it's being used in treatment centers. And, and this book is for you, the family. It's not for the addict. Don't give it to the addict. The addict doesn't like it. Addicts don't like my book because I'm talking about boundaries and I'm talking about that sort of stuff. They don't like that. But this book is for you. I think you're going to see your, your story. And you'll see yourself on a lot of the pages. So you can get that at Amazon wherever you live in the world. So start educating yourself about what addiction really is, not necessarily the stuff that you've been taught about addiction. There's brain reaction in, in addiction always. You know, the brain is affected by addiction, whether it's a behavioral addiction or a mind-altering addiction. But this is the way we're wired. If I move my finger up and down like this, I'm using my brain. My brain is part of that, right? So that doesn't mean that this is a disease. This is not something that you're powerless over. You absolutely have a choice about whether you use, whether you're stuck in addiction, or whether you're enabling as a loved one. So we need to be able to see our choices and make a decision about what we're going to do differently. I definitely recommend anyone who's going through this problem to go check out the book. I'll put the link, the Amazon version, in the show notes so that way everyone can have quick access to it. And again, I want to thank you for coming on here. But before we go, you know, I know someone out there is listening to our discussion because I believe in synchronicity. I don't believe in you know, things being random. Right? I believe that you and I coming together, you know, this was kind of meant to happen. Me too. And it's part of trying to get this message out. So for anyone who's out there who finds themselves listening to this episode at the right place at the right time, because we know it's going to happen, how can they contact you to be able to get more support, whether for themselves or their family or even their addict? Right. Thank you. So because of Zoom, which is one of the better things that happened during COVID, we work with people all over the world. 
So if you're wanting to get in touch with us, the website is lovewithboundaries, all one word, dot com, lovewithboundaries.com. We offer a free 30-minute Zoom consultation. Sometimes we do it by phone, but it's usually by Zoom. It's, it's nicer to just have a face there. And, you know, we'll see what's going on for you and whether you're a fit for us, whether we're a fit for you. There's no obligation whatsoever. And we tell you how we do our program and, you know, what that might be like for you. Um, on the website, on any of the pages in the top left, I think, corner, is a link for a questionnaire that you need to fill out to be able to get this free 30-minute consultation, just so that we have a sense of you. It's not a long questionnaire. It's just tell us a little bit about what's going on for you kind of thing. As soon as we get that, we will reach out to you and we'll set up a time for this meeting and we'll go from there. So yeah, we're um, we're here waiting for you. I'll put that link in the show notes as well so that way people can have quick access to it. Thank you, Candice, for coming on here today and sharing what you do and basically sharing hope. Because really, at the end of the day, that's what all of us who are struggling with these issues, we look for. And there is hope. There is hope. That's the thing. And the other thing is, please don't give up. Please don't give up. You know, even if it feels like there's no hope, don't give up. There's a saying in, I don't know, 12-step programs, I think. They have a lot of really good sayings. Don't leave five minutes before the miracle happens. So, you know, go get the help you need. Come to us, go someplace where you're really working with somebody who knows how to help you with the situation and don't give up. Powerful words. Thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye, everyone. I want to thank Candice again for an amazing interview. And if you need support or know someone who does need support, Support is strength. Don't be afraid to reach out to Candace because Candace will be able to help. I will put all of her contact information into the show notes. And that's it for today's episode. If you found this or any other episode helpful, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or a five-star rating on Spotify. This will help us to take another step closer to our goal of transforming the lives and impacting the worlds of 11 million people. And as a special thank you to those who do leave a review, we'll read it on air at the end of an episode and give you a special shout out. That's it for today's show. Thank you for showing up for you here today. The best investment you can ever make is in yourself and time is the most valuable commodity in the world. And I hope that we were able to give you the value and impact that you need along your journey. I'll see you next week. Until then. You're just one unwavering action away from a completely different life. To the journey. Much love. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you've gained new insight. Don't forget to subscribe, take consistent action, and join us next time on From Surviving to Thriving Podcast. We're going to take on the world.
Take on the world!